Michael, this is all very confusing. This is On Markets with Remy and Tino, the podcast where we decrypt and demystify economic, financial, and other investing concepts while mixing in a little bit of pop culture. Today, we'll be talking about the Tops Company Inc. going public through the use of a SPAC and what they plan to do with the proceeds. We'll also touch on the second biggest mistake Tino has made as a professional investor. This week, we've got Mike with us again, so he'll add a little bit of color to the conversation. If you have any questions, comments, or would like us to discuss something on the show, please email us at comments at onmarkets.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And as always, if you like the show, please write us a review. So Tino, let's get it started. Tell us about TOPS and SPACs. Yeah, this is a fun one. It kind of ties together a lot of the some of, well, some of the themes we've been discussing over the past couple of weeks here. Um, you've got a company, TOPS, T-O-P-P-S. Uh, you know, Remy, I don't know if you were into the craze back in the 80s as well, but... Uh, Are we talking about TOPS trading cards? TOPS trading cards, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, back in, I think it was 2007 timeframe, apparently Michael Eisner, former CEO of Disney, uh, bought the company, took it private, and now they decide that they want to take it public. Uh, now... In 2021, you, you have a few more options than just going your traditional IPO, IPO route through a bank, like a Goldman Sachs type bank. You can do what's called a SPAC, a special purpose acquisition company, which is you know, effectively a blank check company. Basically, a bunch of investors raise a lot of capital. They take the company public, but it's a shell company, basically. And they use the proceeds from that uh, fundraising to go out and buy a private company. So it's, a, it's kind of a fast track way for a company or an indirect way for a company to go public. We've seen a number of these over the past call it year or so. Uh, I would say it's exploded. SPACs have been around for a while, but really has exploded over the last year. So uh, TOPS will most, it looks like it will now become a publicly traded company with a, well, I think it's like a $1.1 or $1.3 billion valuation. And the proceeds, and here's the kicker, the proceeds are going to be used to build out their NFT business. It's the natural next step, right? So their idea, I guess, is to go into the next you know, couple of years is to, I guess, create sport cards or, 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 or sporting cards and other types of memorabilia uh, as NFTs. And they're going to use the proceeds to kind of get that business going. So Tino, you should have thought of this, right? And when we first started talking about NFTs, I think the first thing you analogize to is baseball cards. Yeah. Uh, exactly. I mean, that's that's effectively what this is. And, you know, the, the nice thing about using an NFT is that you don't have to worry about damage. OK, you don't have to worry about something being minted or not being graded. And then for also, as long as you don't, you know, forget the key or forget your, your, your token, uh, you can't lose it. So uh, I guess this is maybe the new wave of of memorabilia and collectibles. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be interesting for sure. So back to the SPAC thing for a second. So up until like a year ago, I had never even heard the term SPAC. Now it's like I can't go like 15 minutes without hearing about a SPAC. Did something change to make these things more desirable or easier to implement? Or had there been some sort of changes in anything that that has has made this a, a desirable thing to do all of a sudden? It's somewhat of a financial fad of sorts. And there, there's a lot of these that kind of pop up along, along the way. But I'd say the last year, probably one of the biggest drivers was uh, uh, COVID and uh, the lockdowns and the impact it had on, on financial markets to the, to the degree where doing your traditional IPO was a little bit more difficult. Uh, but also your, 
in a weird way, the risk of a, of, a, of a deal falling through often falls quite a bit through the use of a SPAC. So uh, meaning that a, a good example is you, you, a lot of times you see IPOs, they fail literally a couple of days before they're supposed to price for reasons that are completely exogenous, right? It could be market volatility. Uh, it could be a number of different factors. Whereas with a SPAC, the deal's almost certainly going to get done uh, or, or at least a much higher probability. So that's, I think that's a, a key component. And I think another reason too, is that the early adopters are kind of the, the I don't want to say SPACs are, are, are new because they've been around for a very long time, but those maybe two, three years ago that did them and were successful made a ton of money. So now you've got uh, this, this, this desire to kind of ride the wave. And that's why you've got Shaquille O'Neal and all these other celebrities that are jumping in with their own SPACs is because it's, it's a bit of a craze and a bit of a fad now. And with all the other meme stock, you know, craziness are going on right now. It's just, it's just one of those things that's grabbing a lot of headlines and attracting a lot of investor capital. Kind of feels like the whole NFT craze is a fad to me. I mean, I feel like uh, a year from now, we're going to have a lot of people that spent millions of dollars that have absolutely nothing to show for it. I think there's going to be a lot of that. I mean, uh, I, again, maybe this is all of our age talking here. I, I, this is one of those things that I truly don't understand entirely. But I was joking around. I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago. I was half joking, but I felt like I feel like the buyers right now or the sellers are also the buyers of NFTs, right? You know, you've got, you know, what's his name? Jack uh, over at Twitter sold his first tweet for what I forgot what it was like two or three million dollars, something crazy like that. And two and a half mil. My theory on this was Jack was also the buyer. Uh, turned out I was wrong, apparently. But uh, nonetheless, uh, I, I can't imagine uh, people outside the enthusiasts right now getting into something like this. But we'll see. I mean, again, look what's happening right now. You're starting to see volatility in the equity markets. And we'll, again, this might be premature, but we're seeing volatility drop quite a bit in equity markets over the past couple of weeks. A lot of people are uh, hypothesizing that's because people are going back to work. You know, you're not sitting at home trading stocks like you used to. We saw 965,000 jobs created in March. Uh, we saw that number came out come out last Friday. It was 50% more than what the street was expecting. So uh, my point here is that if people start going back to their quote unquote normal lives, as, as normal as it can be going forward, are we really going to see this level of interest in things like NFTs or, or, or is the momentum strong enough to kind of propel it into something that's real going forward? I don't know. So Tino, a couple of weeks ago, you wrote an article called Do As I Say, Not As I Did. And as you know, I'm a big fan, um, where you outline the top 10 biggest mistakes that you've made as a professional investor over the years. Uh, last week, we talked about the first one, which was garbage in, garbage out. This week, let's talk about number two, which is entitled Guilty Until Proven Innocent. Yeah, uh, this, is, this is one that's sort of embarrassing to admit to, considering I've got a pretty analytical background. I've spent a lot of time studying mathematics but, and statistics for that matter. But, uh, you know, you've you got to learn the hard way. Is, uh, you, you, I, I've learned that statistics, um, I, I treat them guilty until proven innocent. You know, there's that, the old saying or that uh, three types of lies in this world, lies, damn lies, and statistics, and there's some truth behind it. I mean, you know, I think if anything, this last year, the data around COVID, I think, is a, is a great example of you can't take 
headline data on face value. It doesn't tell you what you need to know. A lot of times it, you got to dig de- deeper to truly understand uh, what the data is telling you. Uh, other times the data is just flat out wrong or it's been manipulated or fabricated. Uh, there's, you can, there's no law in this country that says you are restricted from going online and creating a fake data set and publishing a bunch of fancy charts that is support some conclusion that you are you have some incentive to push uh, in most industries. Now, some you can't do that. You know, if you're if you're in a regulated industry, that's a little bit tougher. But you know, Joe Schmo sitting at home, they could put whatever they want together. So my point with this was, no matter what data you're looking at or what statistic you're looking at, you got to really dig deep to make sure that not only has the data been collected properly, that the assessment and the analysis is also sound. And it may sound like you need to be a you know a, a, a mathematics major to some degree, and you, but you don't. There's a book that I actually read read many years ago. It was published in the 50s, I think. Uh, it was called. It's called How to Lie with Statistics by Darren Huff. This book is designed for anyone with any level of mathematics uh, expertise to be able to read and digest and then apply it real time to some of the data that they're hearing, particularly on the, on the, uh, on the nightly news. You know, I feel like when I think about, you know, what we do as a living, for a living, the, the one that drives me nuts all the time is average returns. And I feel like average returns can be almost anything, right? If I buy a stock today at a thousand and it goes up by, I don't know, 60%, it's 1600 a year from now. And then it drops the next year by 50%. You know, I went up 60, it dropped 50. Is my average return now 5% a year? You know, you subtract one from the other and divide by two. And, and if that's the case, how can I say I, I my average return is 5% per year? per year when I invested $1,000 and I only have $800 left. It, 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 you know, it, it drives me crazy. I remember I used to do uh, a fair amount of uh, advisor training, you know, like lunch and learns on, on uh, annuities and things like that. And I would talk about index annuities and, and the returns would be capped and they'd be capped at, you know, maybe 3% or 4% or 5%, whatever it was. And the, and the comeback would always be, there'd always be a guy in the crowd who would say, yeah, but you know, my model has returned 7% average for the last seven years. Why would I give up that extra 3% upside or whatever it happens to be? But, you know, how do you, how do you quantify it? It's, it just seems like a, a made up number. Well, there, there's so many problems with the word average. Uh, you can, you can massively distort an average by outliers. Uh, that's one issue, right? So if you, you know, if you, um, there's a if you think about let's say you t- p- took 3,000 people an average height of five foot eight inches right so um, if you drop somebody let's say the tallest person in the world who was I think eight feet eleven inches up until you know, he died prematurely um, if you drop that individual in there so you've got three three thousand and one people in that data set your average is going to barely move right so some instances averages can work and they can help you, particularly around predictive uh, predictive quality. So what you're talking about in terms of average returns is, okay, what am I gonna see going forward in a lot of instances? So there's a lot of predictions around that. Now, if you took that same data set and said, okay, I've got 3,000 people with an average net worth of $350,000 and I dropped Jeff Bezos into that at 180 billion, you actually changed the average annual, I'm sorry, the average net worth of that individual in the data set to 60 million. Yeah. Okay, that one outlier massively screws everything up, which is the danger, particularly in stock returns like you're talking about, because stock returns don't follow those fancy, pretty little bell-shaped curves. You wanna know why? Because those don't work on data sets that aren't bound by Newtonian physics. So how does, you know, how does someone sort of judge 
you know, someone that's looking at the results that their advisor may have produced for them, right? And the advisor is going to say it's it's X percent over these years. How do they really judge that? I mean, can they can they put some some faith in that? I really don't know, you know, how to how to respond to that. Well, you know, it's tough. I mean, I would say that uh, myself, along with the team here, uh, we've got a pretty decent background on due diligence on asset managers. And when we do our analysis, you're absolutely right. It's not, okay, well, what have they done over the last year, three years, or five years? Because that's only going to give you a, a partial picture. It's looking at all that information, but then you got to look at different parts of the cycle. Okay, how do they perform during a down market, an up market? What other characteristics were happening at the time? How, how do they perform relative to benchmarks? It's a fair amount of assessment that goes into it. In many ways, I think the danger of this business, and we're all at fault on this, particularly the regulators, is this incessant need to know what an average annual return is. What is a year? I mean, not to get overly philosophical here, but a year is nothing more than a time it takes the earth to go around a huge ball of gas. That doesn't mean anything. Markets aren't, they don't operate on calendars. It's not like we wake up on January 1 every single year and somehow what was driving the market is not going to drive the market going forward or or there's a new set of drivers. Uh, Markets are event driven. And that's the reason why when we look at managers, we look at performance, it really is based on the events that have caused markets to move up and down like last year or 2008 or the boom that we saw in 2013 and 14, things of that nature. So it, it takes a fair amount of work. Well, I guess it's no different than people using the S&P as a benchmark, right? Why the S&P? They, 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 need, they need something to sort of compare it to. And I, you know, I don't think it's specific to our industry or unique to our industry. I think people just like to have you know, a hard numerical thing to, to compare things to. There's a need for benchmarks like the S&P 500. There's no question about it. But most of our clients, most of the investors that are listening today, I seriously doubt that your liabilities in life are benchmarked against the S&P 500. Okay. So what do I mean by that? Is that as the market's going, if the market falls by 30%, do you really want to outperform by 3%? Do you want to only be down by 27% that year? I, usually not. Okay. Somebody that's in retirement, for example, generally speaking, their benchmark is inflation. Whatever their cost of living is, I'm not talking about the Fed's inflation. I'm talking about their personal inflation rate. They want to make sure that they don't run out of money over time. And to benchmark yourself against the S&P 500 is a very, very dangerous thing to do. Remember, the, the S&P 500, by the way, is nothing more than, a, a, like, I think there's 11 or 12 people that sit in a room and they pick stocks. I mean, it's a committee. And this S&P 500 vehicle is a licensing vehicle. It makes hundreds of millions of dollars a year for S&P Global that actually runs it. And again, I'm not knocking the S&P 500. It has its value. But why do you want to benchmark yourself to a a, a group of people sitting in a room picking stocks all day long? It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, before we get off this this, uh, topic, the actual name, the three kinds of lies, you know, I, I actually invoked that quote a couple of weeks ago and I attributed it to Mark Twain. And like three days later, you wrote this piece and attributed it to Benjamin Disraeli. And I sort of felt like you passively, aggressively corrected me and called me out a little bit. So I actually looked it up. And if you look on, uh, on Wikipedia, it says, the phrase was popularized by Mark Twain, who mistakenly attributed it to Benjamin Disraeli. The phrase <laughs> is not found in any of Disraeli's writings. So so I, I'm not so passively, aggressively calling you out. It, it's It's... Apparently, you and I and Mark Twain were all wrong, and nobody really knows who said it. 
podcast is created and presented by Darwin Asset Management LLC and Darwin Advisors LLC, collectively referred to as Darwin. Darwin does not make any representation or warranties and therefore takes no responsibility as to the accuracy, timeliness, suitability, completeness, or relevance of any information contained in this podcast. Any tax or legal information contained in this podcast is general in nature. Always consult an attorney or tax professional regarding your specific legal or tax situation. The information presented does not involve the rendering of personalized investment advice. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk and there could be no assurance that any investment or strategy will be suitable or profitable for a client's portfolio. All investment strategies have the potential for profit and loss. Past performance may not be indicative of future results. Information presented is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation of any offer to buy or sell the securities mentioned herein.